0: How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks be to God. Sorry about that. Uh, we were stuck on one passage of scripture and we didn't scroll down. but. Uh, Hopefully that will be fixed. Um, Let me pray for us. Father, be with us now as we prepare to hear your word. We thank you that you do not leave us um, as orphans having to figure out this crazy, chaotic life. You don't leave us to ourselves, thankfully. You guide us with the truth of Scripture Scripture that is our light, Scripture that is our food, Scripture that is our mirror scripture that is the seed that brings forth fruit and brings blessing to the world. Father, we thank you for your word and how it nourishes, teaches, empowers, strengthens, rebukes and challenges us to be the men and women you've called us to be. We ask now that as we sit at your feet that you would truly help us to hear what it is you have us to learn and that our minds and our hearts would be receptive and that by your spirit we will be changed and transformed because of it. And Father, we ask that you would please bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, do we have any magic fans in here? Any people who like magic? Anyone? Anyone? No? No one likes magic? Well, okay. Let me ask you another question. Anyone heard of the uh, magic duo Penn & Teller, the famous... Musician duo Penn and Taylor. You know, they've been around since the 80s, I think. They're based down in Las Vegas. A very famous celebrity magic couple. Well, they're not a couple, but they're a duo, right? Penn, Gillette, and Teller, right? Penn and Teller. Uh, The leader of that group, Penn, Gillette, the bigger guy, is a staunch atheist, As entertaining as he is a celebrity and as a magician, he also happens to be a very staunch atheist. Not only does he dislike Christianity, he dislikes every religion that is out there because he firmly believes that for the most part, religion does a lot more harm to society than good. Okay? So he is someone who is not someone who is open to hearing about the gospel. He's not open to accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, which is why it's utterly astounding uh, when a couple years ago he went on his YouTube page and posted a video on his link for his fans where he basically talked about a man who came up to him after one of his shows out in L.A. And basically this man came up to him And started evangelizing to him. Started telling him about the gospel. Let me kind of give you some more details of what happened in this situation. Penn and Taylor were doing a a show down in downtown Los Angeles somewhere. And after the show, a guy comes up to him and basically says this to him. Like, hey, I love your show. I'm a big fan. I've been a fan since I was a kid. And I just wanted to give you this. And he hands Penn Gillette a Bible. A small Gideon Bible with the Psalms and the New Testament. Okay. Now, when Penn Gillette received this Bible, he knew exactly what this man was doing. This man was evangelizing to him, right? The man went, you know what? I'm not crazy, okay? I'm not a cuckoo religious radical. You know, I believe in God, and, and I, I, I like your show, and I like you, and I'm a big fan, and I just wanted to give this to you, right? Penn Jillette received it, which is shocking because you would imagine that a staunch atheist like him would probably just have taken that Bible and just flung it across the room or something and mocked this man but he graciously received this bible and after a couple days of ruminating and thinking about this incident this is what he posted on his youtube video this is an actual quote from what he said in the video he said this i've always said that i don't respect christians who don't proselytize proselytize is another way of referring to evangelism so he's saying i really don't respect christians who don't evangelize i don't respect that at all If you believe there is a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not be getting eternal life and whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists would think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. Now, I know there is no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And that's really important. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. We're continuing our sermon series through the the acrostic that we do every year, Grow Up, our Grow Up sermon series that we do uh, at the beginning of every year. And the purpose of this series is to look at the various characteristics that God calls us to embody as we seek to be a blessing to the world. Because our conviction is that in order for us to fulfill the mission that God has given us, which is to bless the world, we have to do that by becoming the men and women he's called us to be, namely these six areas of maturity, okay? And today, we look at the characteristic known as universal church committed, which is simply another way of saying that we are committed in spreading the church and making the church universal, Right? We are so committed to the church that we are committed in making sure that it spreads out and goes out to the far ends of the earth. And one of the ways that as followers of Jesus we do this is through evangelism. Right? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you also have to call yourself an evangelist because those two things are not different from each other, they're the same thing. A Christian is an evangelist, which means if you love Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means you are also an evangelist for Jesus, right? It means that you are committed to the universal church, okay? And so my hope is, is that as we go through this study in our passage, if you have not been evangelizing, maybe this message would encourage and inspire you to change that. And if you're here investigating Christianity, my hope is, even if you don't agree with the gospel, even if you don't end up believing in the gospel, hopefully you can come away from this message like Penn Jillette came away from that encounter with that Christian to where at least he can have a mutual respect for why Christians evangelize and why they find it so important. Okay? So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about why the claim of evangelism can be offensive Why the claim of evangelism can be offensive. Number two, I want to talk about why the claim of the world is more offensive. Then I want to end it with why the claim of Jesus is so beautiful. Why the claim of evangelism can be offensive. Why the claim of the world is more offensive. And finally, why the claim of Jesus is so beautiful. First, why the claim of evangelism can be offensive. Now, it goes without saying that we live in a society where many non-Christians do not tolerate Evangelism from Christians, right? It goes without saying that even though there are atheists like Pendulette who are more, you know, tolerant and more sympathetic to Christians who evangelize, the fact of the matter is most atheists today in our society are not tolerant. They're not sympathetic. In fact, they're downright hostile. More and more Christ- excuse me, non Christians are not putting up with this idea of proselytizing Christians or Christians who try to impose their faith upon them. And they have a certain kind of hostility, kind of standoffish spirit against Christians who would try to do that. And it seems like the church has taken notice and responded in, in, in response, right? A couple of years ago, Barna, the famous Christian um, organization that does various studies and statistics, found out that more and more Christians are doing less and less evangelism. Evangelism has gone down within evangelical churches, which is what we are. We are considered an evangelical church, right? Even though this study tells us that more Christians, around 85% believe evangelism should be a priority for the church, it should be a priority for the Christian, the fact of the matter is when it came to actually evangelizing, it's decreasing at a rapid rate, right? More and more Christians are doing less and less evangelism. Now, there are many reasons why we live in a world that finds evangelism so offensive. And usually those offenses all center on the underlying claims that motivate Christians to evangelize in the first place. Now, when I say claim, what do I mean? What is a claim? What is the underlying claim? A claim basically means a statement of truth without any sort of evidential or proof scientific verification. That's what a claim is. A claim is a statement of truth without any evidence or proof to verify that statement, okay? And here in our passage, Paul tells us one of the basic claims that should compel you as a Christian to evangelize, but it also happens to be a claim that the world finds so offensive. Listen again to what Paul says in verses 11 through 13. He says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice what Paul is saying here. Okay? He says that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, okay, which is what he means when he makes this distinction. There is no Jew or Greek distinction. God, God is the Lord of all. Right. What is he saying here? What is he saying about the Christian faith? He's saying Christianity is the true faith to where everyone should believe in him. Verse 11, you should believe in him in order to be, quote, unquote, what? Saved. Verse 13. Paul is saying, he's making the claim, you should evangelize. Why? Because the Christian faith is the faith. It is the only true faith. It is the only faith that has the truth. No other faith, no other religion, no other philosophy, no other ideology has the truth like Christianity. It has the sole exclusive truth. Now... Think about that for a moment. Think about how a culture like ours, which is highly pluralistic, made up of many different people from all walks of life, from many different faiths and many different beliefs, how they would react to Paul's statement. How would they react? they would react with a lot of offense, right? They would be very offended by that idea, especially in our society where tolerance is considered one of the, if not the most important virtue of our society. When they read statements like this in the Bible, they get very offended because they believe that is so bigoted, that's so narrow-minded, that's you imposing yourself on other people. In fact, some people go so far as saying that is so dangerous. In his book, uh, The Reason for God, Tim Keller recounts a conversation between two non-Christians who explain why they find this idea that Christianity has the sole exclusive truth, why they find it so upsetting. Listen to the conversation. It starts off like this. "'How could there just be one true faith?' asked Blair, a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. "'It's arrogant to say your religion is superior to and try to convert everyone else to it. "'Surely all the religions are equally good "'and valid for meeting the needs "'of their particular followers.'" Religion exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous, added Jeff, a 20-something British man also living in New York City. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Here we read two real people, two real New Yorkers, just like all of you in here, who find the idea of what Paul's saying in verses 11-13 Highly offensive. That says Jesus is the Lord of all. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what religion you were born into. Where you live or what you are exposed to or weren't exposed to. Jesus is the truth for you and therefore you must believe in him. People find that overly offensive. They find that bigoted. They find that narrow-minded. And therefore they don't tolerate it. That's why people find evangelism so offensive. Because of the underlying claim that it assumes with Christianity. Now here's my question. All of us in here believe that tolerance is a good thing, right? And we don't want to impose our views and we don't want other people's views to be imposed on us. And so when you read this kind of reasoning or when you think through this kind of reasoning, my res- my question to you is how do you respond appropriately? How do you deal with this tension to where you want to follow what Scripture says, which is we're called to evangelize, we're supposed to be committed to universal church, and yet we still want to respect other people? Well, unfortunately, it turns out that a lot of Christians end up compromising and try to avoid this tension altogether by not doing any evangelism at all because they think that it's just wrong, right? Many Christians, sad to say, even in spite of what they claim that evangelism is a priority, in their heart of hearts as spoken by their actions... They think evangelism is not a good thing. They're embarrassed by it, and therefore they don't do it. But my question is, is there another way out of this? Is there another way in which you can look at evangelism? And is there another way that you can look at the world to where you don't have to have that kind of response? Well, the answer leads me to my next point. Why the claims of the world are more offensive. Now, it is true. It's very true that one of the claims behind evangelism is that the Christian faith is the true faith and therefore the only faith with the truth. But in spite of how offensive that claim can sound, one of the things that Paul shows us is that you need to understand, Christian, that when you consider the truth claims of the world, because the world has truth claims too. If you compare to the truth claims that the world tells us to believe is true versus the truth claims that Christianity tells us to be true, you will be shocked to discover that it's the world who has a more offensive claim. And it's actually the Christian claim that's not offensive at all. Where does he go with this? Let me show you. Read again verse 6 and 7. He says this. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What in the world is Paul talking about here? What does it mean to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss? It just sounds nonsensical. What is Paul talking about? Well, let me explain. If you ever study philosophy, any kind of philosophy, whether it's ancient philosophy, modern philosophy, eastern philosophy, western philosophy, medieval philosophy, whatever kind of philosophy, one of the things that you'll discover even though all these different philosophical systems are so different from one another they all have a common goal because philosophy reflects the universal yearnings and desires of mankind you see all philosophy teaches us that mankind is looking for answers in life to answers to some of the most important questions of life and these important questions can really be boiled down to three basic questions and those three basic questions are where do i come from which is a question of origin Who am I, which is a question of identity, what am I supposed to do, which is a statement of a question of purpose, right? Questions of origin, identity, and purpose are universal questions that every culture since the beginning of mankind have been asking and are still asking even today, okay? And interestingly, all of the cultures of the world would look in two directions to figure out the answer to those questions. They would either look up to the the stars and the heavens, Or they would look to the realm beneath them, right, the world below, the abyss. So for some cultures, in order to figure out their identity, their origin and purpose, they would look up to the night sky and they would try to study the stars. They would try to interpret the stars, right, and they would come up with things like horoscopes. You know, horoscopes are not a recent invention, right. Horoscopes originated in in Median and Persian culture back in the ancient world. Horoscopes were ancient society's ways of figuring out what is my purpose, what is my origin, what is my identity, right. But then there were other ancient cultures, instead of looking up at the night sky, they would try to find the truth in the netherworld, in the underworld, the underworld, right. Cultures would somehow try to, you know, contact the realm of the dead or the realm of the abyss where they would try and make contact through mediums and voodoo and witch doctors to try and communicate with the land of the dead, which ancient people thought was in the realm beneath them under the earth. So they can figure out life, so they can fix problems, so they can cause curses and so they can cause fortunes to happen in their life. And as a result of all these cultures looking up to the heavens and to the world below... You had societies that did atrocious things, atrocious behaviors, because these answers that they got from looking at the stars or at the world below led them to these kind of conclusions like child sacrifices, human sacrifices, cannibalism, body mutilation. Cultures that have looked up to the heavens and to the world below came up with answers to the most important questions of life that led them to do atrocious things. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, man, I'm so glad I'm not like those primitive, ancient people. How stupid of them to to think that they can figure out their origin, their identity and purpose just by looking up into the night sky or looking into this netherworld or underworld they think is out there. Right? Because we assume we would never do something as atrocious like eating people or sacrificing children or, you know, mutilating our bodies because we're so sophisticated. We're so evolved. But my response is, are you really so sure about that? Are you really so sure that you're just so much better? If you take a look at all of the major applicational sciences that are out there, you've noticed, for example, astronomy, astrobiology, astrophysics, which study literally the heavens, right? People who study those have been tempted to answer the question of origin, identity, and purpose, But you know who other kinds of scientists have tried to answer those three questions? Paleontologists, archaeologists, microbiologists, scientists who look at the ground beneath them. Isn't that interesting? Scientists have also looked to the heavens. They've also looked at to the ground beneath, the realms beneath the abyss. And they have been tempted to answer these questions of origin, identity, and purpose. So, for example, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about, okay? Where do I come from? Astro-scientists say that we come from the elements of the universe that are byproducts of exploded stars that later form solar systems and planets. Microbiologists go on to tell us that our planet in... And interaction with these, you know, universal elements in conjunction with deep pools of amino acids allowed the creation of simple cell bacteria that later evolved into forming simple aquatic species that evolved again to land animals like mammals, one of which developed into primates, one which further developed into homo sapiens, human beings like you and I, right? So there's the question of origin. Okay, well, what about the question of identity? Who am I? Well, science again, like paleontology, says that based on the fossil records of our ancestors that are buried deep beneath the earth, Right Within the abyss, you are like any other creature that has evolved, which means you are no more precious, no more valuable, no more special than any other creature that walks on this planet. Scientists will say you have no more inherent value than a dung beetle out in Egypt. You're virtually the same in terms of value. Right? Well, in light of those questions, what am I to do? What is my purpose? Scientists today will say... From astrophysicists to microbiologists will say, you need to survive. Based on all the answers that we have done in our scientific studying, the main purpose of life is for you to survive because life is the most precious thing and therefore you need to do whatever you can to make sure that you pass on your genetic material to the next generation. Do what you need to do, even if it means you have to conquer, destroy, and kill the competition. Whether it's in the form of devouring them, deceiving them, simply taking from them. Do whatever you can to make sure you and your own survive to the next generation and destroy the weak. Get rid of the weak so they don't take valuable resources and just dominate and conquer and rule and destroy so that you can live on. Now when you think about these truth claims that science tells us to believe, let me ask you an honest question. What is really more offensive, the truth claims of science or the truth claims of Christianity? What is more offensive, especially when you consider the implication of some of the truth claims that science says? Let me read you a quote from a Christian author named Philip Yancey so you see where I'm going with this. This is from his book, Rumors of Another World. He says this, schizophrenic is the best way to describe modern society's view of sexuality. On the one hand, scientists insist that we are organisms like any other animal and that sex is a natural expression of that animal nature. The porn industry happily complies, supplying sexual images of the famous and the anonymous to anyone willing to pay. And yet on the other hand, when people truly act out their animal natures, society frowns in disapproval. Sheriff deputies arrest members of the Spur Posse in a California high school for competing to conquer girls with some victims as young as 10 years old. A few states in the U.S. allow legalized prostitution. But no parents encourage their daughters to pursue such a career. Hollywood may glamorize adultery on screen. But in real life, it provokes pain and rage, sometimes strong enough to drive the wounded party to murder the rival or jump off a bridge. Now, when you read the kinds of behavior that this author is bringing up, prostitution, adultery, a sex posse, trying to conquer girls as young as 10 years old, we read this kind of behavior and we're horrified. Right? We find that utterly disgusting, and yet the author points out that's so consistent with the truth claims of what science tells us to believe. I mean, if science says, after all, that sex is simply a product of our animal instincts, that it's not about anything, you know, anything in terms of monogamy or in terms of family, it's just about passing on your next generation, why would you object, therefore, to the kinds of behavior that is simply consistent to those truth claims? See? And yet... We cannot deny it. Even if we live consistently with what we claim is the truth, in our heart of hearts, we know it does not comport. It does not feel right. Right? We have this inner conflict when we try to be as consistent with the claims of truth that science tells us. He calls it schizophrenic. I call it the inner turmoil where the truth claims of what the world tells us is right doesn't feel right in our heart of hearts. We know there's something wrong. It doesn't click. It's not congruent. There's something off with this. How can something that is supposedly true feel so wrong in our hearts? How can what we confess to be the truth in our hearts feel so unjustified and not right? See, the point Paul is making in all of this is simply this. It, it, he's saying that, in spite of how offended the world can be to the truth claim that Christianity has the truth, that offense is nothing compared to the offense of some of the truth claims that science gives to us. Now, before I go on, I have to say this here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am not anti-science when I'm saying all of this, all right? I graduated top of my class, you know, magna, not top, I guess it's mid, mid-top. Magna cum laude, you know, 3.9 GPA, UNC Chapel Hill, BS in biology, minor in chemistry. I love science. I am a science guy, Okay. I am a science person. I think science is good in figuring out and learning the truth. What I am not a fan of is when science tries to make truth claims. There's a difference between truth and truth claims. Truth is verifiable with measurements and math and and, and science. Truth claims are statements of truth that you can't verify, that science itself cannot verify. Questions of origin, identity and purpose cannot be answered scientifically and just because someone with a PhD in microbiology says that it's true even though he doesn't back it up with science doesn't necessarily mean it is true just because he has that PhD. That's the point I'm trying to make and that's the point Paul is making. The truth claims of the world are not as authoritative as we presume it to be. Which also conversely means the truth claims of scripture are not as dismissive as you may think it may be either. In fact, Paul goes on to say that if you really consider the truth claims of Scripture, particularly this idea that Christianity has the truth, if you dig a little deeper, you will find there's another underlying truth claim behind it. A truth claim that is so astoundingly beautiful that anyone, even the most hardcore atheist, would want to believe it and would never be offended by. And to explain, let me go to my final point, why the claim of Jesus is so beautiful. Let's read again our passage from verse 8 all the way down to verse 11. Paul writes, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Here Paul tells us, there is a truth claim out there that you can confess this truth with your mouth, but that is also recognizably true in your heart. Unlike the truth claims of science that tells you, hey, confess with your mouth that you're a primate, that you're just a mammal, right? And therefore just sleep around with as many people as possible. But your heart says, no. That feels so unjustified, that doesn't feel right. Paul says there is a truth claim you can confess with your mouth that your heart will say, This is justified. This does feel right. This is true. What is that truth? It's the truth of Jesus. What do I mean by that? The truth of Jesus. Uh, In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this about himself I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way, I am the truth,